Sciences. Now that's despite the fact that at Downs School he wrote what I suppose is one of the most loco-specific of his poems. That is to say, a poem about a place, and you can go to the Downs School and you look at the building and you work out just where it was that he's talking about, the adjoining uh, garden, uh, when he wrote one of his best-known poems of the 1930s, who's often known by its first title, Out on the Lawn, I Lie in Bed. Uh, he also gave it a title when first published in The Listener of Summer Night, and subsequently he gave it the title of A Summer Night. And it's a wonderful, beautiful poem. Out on the lawn I lie in bed, vague, conspicuous overhead, in the windless nights of June. Forests of green have done complete the day's activity. My feet point to the rising moon. Lucky this point in time and space is chosen as my working place, where the sexy hours of summer, the bathing arms and the warm, uh, uh, the bathing hours and the warm arms, the leisure drive through a land of farms are good to the newcomer. And I could go on, although I'd need the text, and you would be drawn into a magical poem. And its magical nature is part of what I think Auden is identifying as the problem with it, because finally that poem is about what it is to be on the inside of a privileged community. And in its original version, uh, which he subsequently altered, he's very aware of those who are excluded from the, uh, this privileged community. Uh, a later stanza reads, the creepered wall stands up to hide the gathering multitudes outside whose glances hunger worsens, disguising from their wretchedness our metaphysical distress, our kindness to ten persons. And what he's talking about there is the slump uh, the depression and the vast numbers of the unemployed who don't have it so good as he had it in that school garden in the 1930s. So in some ways uh, he does, uh, I cite that poem because it's a beautiful poem and it's about the locality and it will doubtless interest you if you don't know it to look it up. And he later did identify it, 30 years later he did identify it as a poem which was important to him as a means of his rediscovering his Christianity. But Colwell for all that was not what he would have defined as one of his holy places. The earthly paradise, he said in an essay in the dyer's hand, the earthly paradise is a beautiful place, but nothing of serious importance can happen in it. And I think that what he means is that in the garden at that, uh, on that summer night, nothing of serious importance could happen. It was wonderful, but there was a world elsewhere. And in a way, the title, Summer Night or A Summer Night, contains a buried allusion, I think, to Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is itself a play which is quite fun, but it's also dark, and it's also about topsy-turvydom. And Auden is aware that dream is not reality. The poem A Summer Night ends talking about uh, the difference between river dreams and the size and vigours of the sea. So I mention that poem really to be irrelevant, because that's not what I'm going to talk about, but it is relevant to this locality. So what are the places that I am going to talk about, and where are they? Well, they're in the north of England. Uh, his brother, John Auden, after, uh, uh, after um, uh, Whiston had died, he, uh, 
He said, um, limestone landscapes became Whiston's chosen environment, a passion originating at the time we were in Bradwell, although when he had seen more of the Pennines, he probably came to love Alston more in Cumberland, more than any other place. And later, writing to Geoffrey Grigson uh, he, in 1950, Auden said, my great good place is the part of the Pennines bounded on the south by Swaledale, on the north by the Romans' Wall, and on the west by the Eden Valley. So a very specific area of the north of England, which was important to him. Now, again, I need to refine what Auden himself said about his own work. And he was a great reviser, as some of you may know, of his own poetic output. Because in 1971, he gave a talk in New York to the Freud Society, and in this, he referred quite explicitly to what he termed his sacred landscape, that is, the landscape bounded by those geographical coordinates he gave uh, to Grigson. And he read three poems, or three extracts of poems, which I'll also look at if I have time. Uh, and they start with uh, an extract from his poem written in 1940, A New Year Letter, and then go on to In Praise of Limestone, and finish with a poem called Amar Loci, written in 1965. But uh, he said that was his first attempt in 1940 to do something with the lead mining world of his childhood. But that rather overlooks the fact that in Auden's poetry there are all sorts of references to names from the Alston Moor lead mining area which crop up. And the first one, you, you may be wondering, I suppose I'd better explain what that is, so that picture I'm showing you. That is an adit. Uh, that is an entrance to a lead mine. Uh, you can just see the uh, broken rails of the tram line that used to lead into it. And that's actually a photograph which I took at Rookup, uh, which is in County Durham, which was one of his very, very special places, as we'll go on to, sh to, to see. But what I want to start by reading you is, is an extract from the very first... Um, I need to... Yes, oh, good. Um, the very first poem in which Auden heard his own... Oh, this is kind of... The, right, I'm going to start there. Who stands the crux left of the watershed on the wet road between the chafing grass? Below him sees dismantled washing floors, snatches of tram line running to the wood, an industry already comatose, yet sparsely living. A ramshackle engine at Cashwell raises water. For ten years it lay in flooded workings, until this, its latter office, grudgingly performed. And then the poem goes on. And the reason I read that is that this is the poem... Good. Uh, this is the poem in which uh, Auden said he first heard his own voice. This was the first poem he wrote in 1927, when he was still an undergraduate at Oxford, uh, where he felt all the words were his, and this was his poem, rather than being a der derivative poem. And this is a poem looking out on Alston Moor. Uh, we know that because Cashwell identifies a, a mine, a lead mine, which was still operational um, just in Auden's day, um, which um, he knew about and which he had visited and which is there. 
Um, this is as near as you get to a photograph of what is left of Cashwell Mine. And in the background there is uh, Cross Fell. And the reason that I show you that photograph is to show you how in the middle of nowhere this place is, how obscure it is. And this first poem of Auden's that he wrote is one of wanting passionately to be identified with a place, but feeling somehow not quite of it. Why would this be? One of the things to understand about Auden is that his identification with the North Pennines is different from, if you like, the standard literary association between poet and place offered by examples such as Wordsworth or Thomas Hardy. Auden never lived in the North Pennines, unlike, of course, those two. And he himself differentiated himself from, from Wordsworth in a comment he made to an amanuensis in 1947. I like the same country as Wordsworth, but not the same places. My landscapes aren't really the same as Wordsworth's. Mine, and that's a point I haven't written about yet, come from books first. And this is an interesting issue about Auden. He was a very unusual boy, and he very early on de developed a passion for lead mining and indeed for being underground. Looking back, he said, I was never so emotionally happy as when I was underground. And into adulthood, he would be an awkward guest if you had him to stay because you would quite often find that he had taken down the curtains or he had taken up the stair carpet in order to pile on the bed, in order to simulate the kind of weight of, of, of a kind of mine on top of it. This is actually attested by various people. It's not, it's not just uh, me making it up. But it is to do with this passionate identification with lead mining or with its operations uh, and so he, he, and he developed he said um, this comes from a late memoir most of what I know about the writing of poetry or at least the kind I'm interested in writing I discovered long before I took an interest in poetry itself between the ages of 6 and 12, I spent a great many of my waking hours in the fabrication of a private secondary world, the basic elements of which were A, a limestone landscape mainly derived from the Pennine Moors in the north of England, and B, an industry, lead mining. It is no doubt psychologically significant that my sacred world was autistic. That is to say, I had no wish to share it with others, nor could I have done so. As regards my particular lead mining world, I instinctively felt that I must impose two restrictions upon my freedom of fantasy. Physical impossibilities and magic means were forbidden. When I say forbidden, I mean that I felt in some obscure way that they were morally forbidden. Then there came a day when the moral issue became quite conscious. As I was planning my platonic idea of a concentrating mill, something that you find on a lead, lead miner as part of the process, I ran into difficulties. I had to choose between two types of a certain machine for separating the slimes called a buddle. One type I found more sacred or beautiful, but the other type was, as I knew from my reading, the more efficient. At this point, I realized that it was my moral duty to sacrifice my aesthetic preference to reality or truth. Now, in other words, what Auden was doing, he was fascinated by lead mining, had a lot of books about it, and part of my research involves discovering just what books they were that he had. 
But he was not interested in, in terms of, particularly of the lead miner as a figure. He was interested in it as a process. And from it, he derived certain kinds of intuition about, as he later described it, as the way poetry should be written. So there is this strange, hidden underground as the appropriate metaphor link between his life as a poet and his interest in lead mining. Now, I've said that he doesn't really resemble uh, the model of belonging in place that, uh, that, that either Wordsworth or Hardy uh, had. And he said, again, in an essay in the Dyer's Hand, whatever their doubts and convictions about the purpose and significance of the universe as a whole, Tennyson's Lincolnshire and Hardy's Dorset were places where they felt completely at home. Now, I think that what made his lead mining world um, important to him in the poetry that he was writing in his juvenilia and also in the 30s and in this very first poem, Who Stands the Crux Lead Left of the Watershed, I think the importance of it is it's a world about which he knew a lot. He knew a lot about lead mining. He knew a lot about the geology. He was very well informed. And he wanted to be part of the place but he felt himself excluded. And if you read that poem, The Watershed, I think you can get a tremendous energy of wanting to be part of something, but also sensing that he is in it a stranger, somebody who ha is just a tourist, who is not authentically part of place. And I think that that's part also, the, the obstinacy of place, the uncooperativeness of place, is also important to Auden ethically, and that that's what was missing, shall we say, in the garden at Colwell. It was too easy for him. So what I want to now look at is that poem in which the title of my talk, Holy Places, actually occurs. So again, we're going to see how successful I can be in nudging it up. It's got to be done slightly spasmodically, so forgive me. So this is from the poem Streams, which he wrote in um, 1953. Lately, in that dale of all Yorkshire's the loveliest, where, off its fell side, helter-skelter, Kisden Beck jumps into swale with a boyish shouting. Sprawled out on grass, I dozed for a second and found myself following a croquet tournament in a calm enclosure with thrushes popular. Of all the players in that cool valley, the best with the mallet was my darling, while on the walls that begirdled it, wild old men hunted with spades and hammers, monomaniac each for a megalith or a fossil, and bird watchers stalked the mossy beech woods. Suddenly, over the lawn, we started to run, for lo, through the trees in a cream and golden coach, drawn by two baby locomotives, the god of mortal doting approached us, flanked by his bodyguard, those hairy armagers in green who laugh at thunderstorms and weep at a blue sky. He thanked us for our cheers of homage and promised X and Y, a passion undying. With a wave of his torch, he commanded a dance, so round in a ring we flew, my dear on my right, when I awoke. But fortunate seemed that day because of my dream and enlightened, and dearer water than ever your voice, as if glad, though goodness knows why, to run 
with the human race. Wishing, I thought, the least of men, their figures of splendor, their holy places. And again, this is quite a loco-specific situation. Uh, in the, a letter of June 1953, he wrote, I'm spending two nights in one of my holy places without letting a soul know where I am. I'm writing this after tea on a grass bank beside a waterfall in a limestone gorge with buttercups and clover in front of my nose. What a spot to hold hands and swear an eternal tie. Now, a couple of things are interesting about this in terms of, of, of place. He's in Celt, which is um, in Swaledale. And it's, again, not a well-known place. It's not a large, well-known, uh, famous location, but it was known to him. So it's, a slightly, it's an obscure location, uh, but it's one he knows about, and it's one which is special to him. We don't know why it was special. I, I, I can't believe this was his first visit. This must be return visiting. He went back there for a reason. It had an association. But although he's very specific here, interestingly enough, Kirsten Beck uh, evokes something which doesn't actually exist. You can look on a name, uh, on a map. You won't find the name Kirsten Beck. You will find the name Kirsten you will find Kiston Hill. You will find Kiston Force, which are waterfalls on the River Swell itself. And I think, actually, the location where Auden is is where a, a, a stream called East Gill comes into the Swale. That's the only place in that stretch of river where there is a turf bank on which he could have uh, gone to sleep. And it's the only place on which there would be very likely to be boys jumping into the water as he evokes there. But nevertheless, this is a place which is holy to him, special to him. It connects, and it's important that it is a real place, a place that can be found on a map and a place that can be visited. Oh, that's the wrong, that's the wrong one. Oh, good. Here's another little list of names uh, about uh, and how they work from a later poem called Prologue X60, written in 1967. And he talks about, it's a longer poem, but I've just extracted, he talks about this minuminous map. He's praising Austria, where he's now living, and he's saying the place, the village of Kirchstetten, where he lives, has added its name to minuminous map of the Solihull gasworks, gazed at in awe by a bronchial boy. The Blue John Mine, the Festiniog Railway, the Ryada Dams, Crossfell, Celt, and Cauldron Snout, of sites made sacred by something red there, a lunch, a good lay, or sheer lightness of heart. Now, not all these names come from the North Pennines, but those last three do. Crossfell, which, as I've already said, is the, 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 the highest peak in the Pennines behind the mine of Cashwell that I showed you the picture of. Celt, where he is uh, uh, when he's uh, writing this poem, Streams. And Cauldron Snout, which is or used to be the meeting point of three uh, counties and a wonderful uh, waterfall tumbling over basalt, uh, which Auden, again, knew. Now, the point I suppose that I'm wanting to make to you is that if we have, and many people do have, 
an image of Auden as somebody who left England. Left England on, in circumstances which some people regard, regarded at the time, and some still do, is somewhat discreditable, somewhat dishonourable. After all, having spent the 30s telling everybody that it was important to do something about this rotten system of ours, uh, having written a poem uh, like Spain about the Spanish Civil War, which contains uh, the notable injunction, today the struggle, forget about the past, forget about the future, today is the time to do something. Having written that kind of poem, what happens uh, in 1939? Uh, he leaves, he leaves for America and uh, takes American citizenship. So in some ways, uh, and I think his reputation never fully recovered from that in, in some aspects, uh, now, I think in Auden's favour, it does need to be remembered that he left in January 1939, that is eight months before war broke out, when there were pe uh, people who still thought in the post-Munich uh, uh, mi miasma is probably the best word for that, uh, that war might be avoided. Um, so it's not as if war broke out, he scuttled away. And here is perhaps not the place to, to fully argue the rights and wrongs of, of, of what he did. But the point I want to make is if one thinks about Auden as somebody who left England behind him, the persistence of his notation of these English places, and I've quoted you examples from the 1950s and the 1960s after all, that is the time when he was an American citizen, is interesting, and it tells us that there was a kind of connection or importance of, Auden, uh, of England for Auden that never went away. But what kind of importance, what kind of connection was it? Now, one of the problems, going back to that poem, Out on the Lawn I Lie in Bed, one of the problems for Auden in England as it was being practiced in his childhood and in the 1930s was precisely its insularity. And elsewhere in that poem, he talks about how we're too gentle. Gentle, do not ask to know what doubtful act allows our, our freedom in this English house, he talks about, our picnics in the sun. He's saying, we're closing our eyes in this garden where we're sleeping so happily in this June night. We're closing our eyes to the wider world and its impulses. So one of the problems for England is it is too little, it is too self-enclosed, it is too inward-looking. But that didn't mind, mean that he could not find a use for England and for his sacred landscape. And I'm now going to look at the most notably extended um, evocation of his sacred landscape that it can be found in his poetry, um, which is a passage from the long poem he wrote uh, in 1940 called New A New Year Letter. Uh, now, the poem is very long, so this is uh, um, a shortish, relatively, I mean, it's 80 lines or so, uh, it's a, it's a shortish part, but it is notable that a poet who already knew that he was um, in trouble for having left England behind, questions were even asked, 
hilariously in the House of Commons about his absence, although the, uh, the, the, one of the, uh, the speaker was so um, uh, out of touch with poetry that he, mis uh, he mistook the question as being referring to a tennis player called H.W. Austin. Not the, <laughs> so not much changes in terms of uh, who knows what about what. Uh, but I want to uh, just look at this, this, this poem from a New Year letter, which is, as I say, the most um, full evocation uh, of this area. And it is, in some ways, a remarkable piece of poetry. But it is part, again, of um, Auden's uh, quarrel with himself and with England. He'd, he was writing at almost the same time to his friend, Professor E.R. Dodds, back in England. And Dodds was sort of saying, do you really know what you're doing leaving the country? Do you know what it's... And, and Auden's reply, which isn't wholly convincing in, in some of its other aspects, but he said, to me, England is, bits of the, is my friends and bits of the country, like the Pennine Moors. Uh, and here he's talking about precisely what these bits of the country are and what, if you like, England means to him. Whenever I begin to think about the human creature we must nurse to sense and decency, an English area comes to mind. I see the nature of my kind as a locality I love. Those limestone moors that stretch from Bruff to Hexham and the Roman wall, there is my symbol of us all. There, where the Eden leisures through its sandstone valley, is my view of green and civil life that dwells below a cliff of savage fells from which original address man faulted into consciousness. Along the line of lapse, the fire of life's impersonal desire burst through his sedentary rock and, as at Dufton and at Knock, thrust up, between his mind and heart, enormous cones of myth and art. Always my boy of wish returns to those peat-stained, deserted burns that feed the weir and tine and teas, and, turning states to strata, sees how basalt long oppressed broke out in wild revolt at cauldron snout and from the relics of old minds derives his algebraic signs for all in man that mourns and seeks, for all of his renounced techniques, their tramways overgrown with grass, for lost belief, for all, alas, the derelict lead-smelting mill flewed to its chimney up the hill that smokes no answer any more but points a landmark on Bolt's law, the finger of all questions. There, in Rookup, I was first aware of self and not-self, death and dread. Adits were entrances which led down to the outlawed, to the others, the terrible, the merciful, the mothers. Alone in the hot day, I knelt upon the edge of shafts and felt the deep Urmutterfurcht that drives us into knowledge all our lives, the far interior of our fate to civilise and to create, 
das Weibliche, that bids us come to find what we're escaping from. There, I dropped pebbles, listened, heard the reservoir of darkness stirred. O oh, deiner Mutter kehrt dir nicht wieder, du selbst bin ich, dein Pflicht und Liebe. Brach sie nun, mein Bild, and I was conscious of my guilt. Now, various things are interesting about this uh, longish extract of, of poetry. He's evoking England, but what's interesting is he's managed to make an England which has become internationalized. That although he's talking about these extremely specific and very, very obscure little places, you know, Dufton, Knock, who's heard of them? I mean, Dufton's very beautiful, uh, but, um, you know, people hadn't heard of them. Rookup, who's heard of Rookup? Nobody would have heard of Rookup in, in, in 1940. It was, it was extremely obscure, unless you were a specialist geologist and knew how important it was. So he's naming these not well-known places, but he's making them, he's universalizing them. He's saying they're not just symbols of England, uh, so if we're not talking about an enclosed space, our freedom in this English house. He's talking about something which can be a universal symbol. There is my symbol of us all. Uh, it's a symbol for humankind. Uh, and that's interesting because in a way he's managing, if you like, to solve his problem of England being too small a place by making it, or a part of it, into something which can represent the whole of humanity. Now it is, it is this stage that he was returning to Christian practice and it's interesting that we get these kind of Trinitarian formulations of names, Bruff, Hexen, Roman Wall, Eden, Dufton, Knock, Weir and Tyne and Tees, um, and Cauldron Snout, Bolt's Law, Rookup. You've got these sort of three little triplications. They've got a kind of Trinitarian naming. And Auden felt that proper names, he says in the Dar's Hand, were in and themselves poetic. They contained a certain essence which was poetic. So in a way, he's reciting a litany of holy places. The other things which are interesting about this, or there's more than I can possibly tell you that's interesting about it, but uh, I can point to certain aspects of it. Uh, other things which strike me as interesting about it are that, in some ways, he's obviously using the landscape to recapitulate the fall of man, but actually in a slightly um, unorthodox way, because... Uh, he's aided by the rather wonderful fact that there is a place called Eden, and it is that valley which is uh, run through by uh, the River Eden. Um, and he, he is geologically exact that on the far side, the northern side of uh, the River Eden and of the Eden Valley, a geological fault has elevated um, the, the, what is the plateau of Alston Moor and Crossfell beyond and behind. So... But what's interesting here is that although he may be talking, he, he, he might be alluding to the idea of a fortunate fall, if green and civil life is in the Eden Valley, where he really wants to be is up on the fells, uh, the, the savage fells. He wants, if you like, the prelapse there in existence, which is, of course, unorthodox. So that's worth thinking about. The other thing that I think I'd emphasize from this particular aspect of the poem is that... 
it shows us how what really moved Auden was not lead mining as an ongoing activity, as an actual activity, but lead going as an activity which was struggling, an industry already comatose yet sparsely living as he described it in the watershed. And what moves him, and he, he was frank about this, what moves him is the mine that has been, the mine that is about to close down, the lead smelting mill, which is derelict. Now, at Rookup, there is, and there's a picture of it, and that would have been as Auden saw it um, in 19... Uh, he first went to Rookup, he says, by his own account, in 1919. Uh, the smelt mill had just closed down. And it was a remarkable building uh, because this, um, this is the flue of a chimney. Um, this is this construction here. Uh, the, the furnaces are in there where the lead was smelted. And the chimney was flued uh, a considerable way up the hillside uh, to a chimney, although that is not the actual chimney that he's referring to there because it wasn't a pointy finger-like chimney but actually a pyramidical chim chimney. There's another smelt mill also in the area and he says it were blending them together. I show you this because uh, it's derelict in the exact sense of his word. It's not dilapidated. Later... Uh, people started tearing it down. And in fact, if you go there now, all that's left, it's rather sad, is just a fragment of one of those arches. But it occurs to me that for Auden, this stone impressive building with those cloister-like archways was almost the secular industrial equivalent of the ruins of some uh, sort of uh, Reformation abbey that had been slighted. And I think the, the way in which, if you like, the secular and the sacred allied into each other is perhaps uh, illustrated if we think about what an impressive and you know, potentially ecclesiastically elusive building the smelt mill at Rookup was. Now, he used names, he had used names for this locality, not only in poems like, uh, early poems like The Watershed, but also in a very early piece of writing called Paid on Both Sides, which is um, a story about feuding families, feuding across Alston Moor, essentially, which he himself explained as a kind of psychodrama of, of middle, English middle-class life as he knew it. So, if you like, he was early on using... Alston Moor and its names and its places as a kind of personal or trying to get to grips with himself, by 1940 he's beginning to try and enlarge that into a, a, a more generalised and universalised um, uh, description. Uh, I should translate for you. It's interesting, of course, he's using so much German in 1940, uh, you know, when, when the Germans weren't actually flavour of the month in Anglophone culture. Uh, uh, and he's quoting here from uh, uh, um, Wagner, Siegfried, Fear of, the Fear of the Primeval Mother, it's all Mutterforscht. And the quotation, which he's partly made up to um, make his name, but also comes from Wagner, means, your mother will never come back to you. Your own self am I. For the sake of a necessary rhyme, he interpolates your allegiance of love and then adds a line from much later in the scene from Siegfried, though it shatter my image. And um, the mothers are from Goethe's Faust. So he's using a lot of Ge uh, German right here. And this is also still a kind of psychodrama. It's about the need to leave the mother, about to, 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 move, to grow up, if you like, but played out also as a kind of universal uh, 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 necessity and also using these extremely obscure 
English locations, which he now feels free to return to uh, from America because somehow they don't threaten him as much as they once had. This is a defiantly old-fashioned poem. It's 18th century in its turn with those capitalised place names. And again, this is uh, part of the showing us how Auden was always a defiant and um, in some ways unmodish poet, although he was early associated with modernism and knew Eliot and had enormous respect for Eliot, he was a very different kind of poet from Eliot. And in some ways, we get Auden wrong if we see him straightforwardly as uh, a modernist um, poet. Now, there, I'm going to allude very, very briefly um, to uh, the poem In Praise of Limestone, uh, Partly to tell you that what's significant about it, what's interesting about it, is how he's talking about um, how he's talking about the landscape as a body. Um, when he moved to uh, in 1948, he started a pattern of spending his summers in Europe, and the first place he spent his summers in for ten years was Italy. Uh, and his first visit to Italy was in 1948, where from Florence he wrote a letter to Elizabeth Mayer, who was actually the notional recipient of the poem New Year Letter. And he said, I hadn't realised till I came how like Italy is to my mutterland, the Pennines. I'm in fact starting on a poem in praise of limestone, the theme of which is that that rock creates the only, true, the only truly human landscape. And you remember that uh, he talks about the like, importance of limestone is it, that it, it dissolves in water and that it is like us, like, like we humans, of course, we're mostly made of water, um, but it is inconstant, it changes. We do not have permanence. And the other thing that he describes, um, the, uh, of course, he can't get lead mines into uh, a poem which is set in Italy, although he's, he's aware of its similarity in some aspects. But what it does offer him is what he describes in that poem as a, sh a region of short distances and definite places. And that was, for him, a big difference from the America in which he'd been living. When I lived in England, he wrote in 1955, my reasons for going abroad were to get into the sun, to be able to drink what I liked when I liked, and in general, to have the kind of fun I could not have at home. Now, when I go to Europe from the States, the great relief is escaping from a non-humanised, non-mythologised nature and getting back to a nature in which every acre is hallowed. So again, it's the specificity of place, the meaningfulness of place, the hallowed place, uh, which Auden is emphasising. But he also loves the remote places, the places that you can't easily get to. He wrote in 1954 a little travelogue which he shared, in which he shared his enthusiasm and proposed a six-day itinerary. Um, but it was only ever published in American Vogue, not in the English uh, version. Um, it was proposing a, a deviation from a for an American traveller who might want, be wanting to get to Edinburgh, but who might be seduced into taking six days out to go through these sort of North Pennine places, some hope of that. Uh, but nevertheless, some of the things that he says uh, in England, six unexpected days are irrelevant. Swaledale is not as pretty as Wharfdale, but I find its wildness and remoteness more satisfying. And he also refers to Rookup, the most wonderfully desolate of all the dales. 
And it's that desolation, it's that sense of the end of things, of, of, of the lack of the kind of comfort and amenity that perhaps he was being seduced by in the garden at Colwall that I want to locate in the very last poem which I'm going to look at, whose title is uh, Amor Loci, which obviously means, well, not only obvious if you were taught Latin, uh, means love of place. And this was written in 1965. And of course, I can't quite get it all on the screen. Um, but it's interesting he's talking about love of place rather than the place of love. He's talking about love of place. And he's talking, this is about Rookup. He doesn't name it, uh, but he he, in giving readings, he did identify it as Rookup, and he called it the Rookup poem in his notebook. And interestingly, Rookup was a title that he gave briefly to the poem The Watershed, which isn't actually, I think, set very near Rookup. It's probably set um, near Nent Head in Cumbria. But so Rookup was a name which had tremendous symbolic importance to him. And this, this is the last extended uh, evocation that he gives of a sacred landscape. I could draw its map by heart, showing its contours, strata, and vegetation. Name every height, small burn, and lonely sheeling. But nameless to me, faceless as heather or grouse, are those who live there. It's dead too vague for judgment, tangible only what they wrought, their giant works of delve and drainage in days preterite. Long since their hammering stopped, as the loads all petered out in the dew limestone. Here and there, a tough chimney still towers over dejected masonry, moss, decomposed machines, with no one about, no chance of buttering bread. A land postured in my time for marginal farms. Any musical future is most unlikely. Industry wants cheap power. Romantic muscle, a perilous wilderness. Mr. Pleasure pays for surf riding, claret, sex. It offers them none. To me, though, much. Not as perhaps at twelve, I thought it, of Eden, still less of a new Jerusalem, but for one convinced he will die, more comely, more credible than either daydream. How, but with some real focus of desolation, could I, by analogy, imagine a love that how often smeared shrugged at, abandoned by a frivolous worldling, does not abandon. It's a very sad, moving poem, I find, um, albeit that he's not trying to pull out all the stops in the kind of register that he's using. But what he seems to be talking about is a place that is always there, a place that, and I suppose this is the final lesson of his use of this landscape, a place that is always reinterpretable. At different stages of your life, it will give you 
what you need. And what he needs now is the sense that love is difficult. Love is sometimes apparently unrewarding, uh, but which can persist. And we're not sure whether he's talking about somebody's love for his. This poem has been read uh, biographically by some critics. Or whether he's talking about his love for this place, uh, which perhaps he has been untrue to, but which he comes back to uh, as a final act of homage. And so finally, what I'd su suggest to you is that for Auden, uh, lead mining seems to have been as important as, say, bullfighting was to Ernest Hemingway, um, that it gave him a standard uh, and a relationship to place and to nature, which he found constantly, if changeably, nutritive throughout his writing career. Thank you.